What's up, everybody? I hope you have been blessed to this point as we have worshiped together. A shout out to those of you who are worshiping with us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, we are delighted to have you with us. Now, I want to say a heartfelt thank you on behalf of all of the victims of war that we will be serving through our humanitarian fund in uh, related to the Ukraine crisis and war, as well as to the Republic of Congo. Thank you. To this point, you have given more than $53,000. And our team tells me that if you have not had an opportunity to give, you can do so uh, all the way until tomorrow. But on behalf of the lives that we will touch in the name of Jesus, thank you for your incredible generosity. Now, Make sure you share this message. If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe, but be sure to be prepared to share this message on Facebook, as well as share the link to our website. This is an incredibly important message you want your family and friends to be a part of. All right? God bless. I'm super excited that you joined us today is the second week of our new series called Should I? And listen, guys, uh, last week and this week, I'm really looking at some of the decisions that we have to make around the question generated by our grief. And especially today, I want to talk about guilt and shame. You know, last weekend when I uh, taught uh, the first message, I asked all of you who are watching me online, wherever you live across the country, across the world, or if you were watching me from our San Jose campus, that if you've lost a loved one in the last two years, and I'm one of those people, just simply raise your hand. My team told me that at our San Jose campus, almost easily 60% of the people raised their hands. When I preached this message in person at our Ridgewood City campus last weekend, I asked the same question and invited people to simply to stand. And I know that somewhere between 60 to 70 percent of the folk in the sanctuary stood. I was completely shocked. But that is fully aligned with the fact that uh, that America and the world, we are washed in the epidemic of grief and loss. Nine million people are estimated to be grieving because of the loss of loved ones to COVID alone. A million people have died because of COVID. Add millions more those who are grieving because of having lost loved ones to cancer or heart disease or suicide or some other unanticipated expected loss. So here's what this means, guys. We're living in a time when there are more people grieving than ever before in historical, in, in a contemporary historical context. That if you're sitting in our San Jose campus, you can look to the right, or to your left, or behind you, and there's people grieving. Come on, man! If you're sitting at home and you look through your window across the street, there's a neighbor. I promise you, probably grieving. If you look across the landscape of your family or your extended family, there are folk grieving. 
Think about the folk at work. I promise you there's somebody grieving. And maybe that somebody is you. So I'm, I'm leaning in here today because I feel that God wants me to say to you, if you're in the midst of deep grief, he wants me to say to you, he sees you and you're going to make it. You are not alone. I know because of the politics and the culture, we're, we're, here's what's remarkable, ironic. So many people grieving, and yet each of us are grieving alone. But the message from heaven today to you is that you are not alone. And part of what this message is arguing is that wants to help you to see is that we're all grieving together. We just haven't talked to one another about it. We haven't, we haven't engaged with one another. And I pray that when this message is over, you'll start, we'll talk to each other wherever you are in the country or the world or part of our NBCC's community. All right. It, here's the question that shapes this message today. Should I feel guilty and ashamed? That's a unique part of our gift. What, how do I engage that, right? If you believe in the resurrection, it means that the resurrection means there is life on the other side of death. Somebody ought to say, praise God. <laughs> that, that, that death does not, will not have the last word. Permanent death has already been robbed of its victory. Life on the other side of death. But here's another insight. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, this is how your theology informs your psychology and impacts you, right, in how you function and deal with grief. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it also means that there is life on the other side of great losses. Yeah. Yeah. You'll smile again. Just do the work with God and with others. There's life on the other side of great losses. Listen, last week I told you about some of the feelings that we have to work through as we deal with our grief, right? Anger, confusion, and depression, and fluctuating emotions. But I also talked about guilt and shame. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. So I want to come back and drill in, drill down on, on how do we wrestle with our guilt and shame? Do we feel guilt and shame? Yes. Should we feel guilt and shame? Oh, yeah, it's a part of the grief process. So ironically, yes. You, you, you won't go through grief without feeling it. How do we confront it? How do we deal with it? How does our faith help us to work it through? Well, listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Here, here, I love what he says here. He says, listen, he's trying to help the Christians in Colossians to deal with this notion of guilt and, 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 and shame that's attached to, to sin, right? To sin, the wrongdoings in our lives. And here's what he writes. Notice the death and resurrection language. Death and resurrection language. Come on now. You are dead. That's the death language, right? Because of your sins. Then God made you alive. There's a resurrection. You came back alive again with Christ. Now stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. You were dead because of your sin. He's not just talking about the wrongdoings that we did. He's also talking about the shame and the guilt that is often attached to the wrongdoings that we've done. It has a way of cutting us off from the vitality of life with God. It has a way of cutting us off from the vitality of life. And for many of us, when we're trapped, particularly in toxic guilt and shame, we find ourselves 
walking dead people. That's what he's alluding to. He says, you were dead. But through faith, he says, we have been made alive in the one who came to life again. And this one, watch this, he has forgiven us. He forgave, watch this, not some, not a piece, but all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges that was against us. And he took it away by nailing those charges to the cross in the hands of Jesus the price has been paid the justice peace has been met what incredible words incredible words I'm going to return to them in just a minute you know here's the playlist that should be playing in the background of your mind listen to this the Bible teaches those of us who would be Jesus followers who would believe us that we should be deeply concerned about those who are struggling and suffering with grief and guilt and shame. It should matter to you. It should matter to me. It should. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, be happy with those who are happy. I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody shout rejoice. Yes, rejoice. But, but what about those who are suffering and grieving? He says, and weep with those who weep. We're called to do that. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter uh, 6, verse 2. He says, carry. Can you just type that word in the chat? Shout it out loud. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean by the law of Christ? Well, 24 hours before Jesus was crucified, he said simply this. He charged his disciples and they, and, and, they, and they transmitted that to all of us. Here's the charge. He says, love one another in the same way I have loved you. And then the next day he was carrying the cross up Calvary's hill. The burden of all of our sins identified to that cross. And out of that, Paul says, we should carry one another's burdens. In the space of grief and shame and guilt and suffering. Now, listen. As tough as grief is in, in, in normal context, I want to suggest to you that it's even tougher for many of us, for many, inside of this pandemic. And I want to read to you two stories that talks about the unique shape of grief and guilt and shame because of the unique dynamics of losing a loved one to COVID inside of the pandemic. Here's the first story. Her name is Lucy Cesarez. She says she thinks she caught the coronavirus while working the polls during California 2020 primary election before bringing it home to her husband, David, her sister-in-law, Yolanda, and her mother-in-law, Belvina. Though Lucy herself developed what she calls the worst few flu times 100, David, her husband, fared worse. Lucy took him to the hospital on March the 20th, which was the last time that she saw him in the flesh because he died on April the 3rd, nine days before their wedding anniversary at the age of 69. Lucy said goodbye to her beloved husband over Skype. Yolanda, 
her sister-in-law also fell ill. After two months in the hospital, she died on June 1. Belvina, the mother-in-law, meanwhile, recovered from her bout with COVID-19, but distraught after losing two children, basically in two months, she also died June 16. Lucy found herself alone in a home for the first time in 23 years. And listen, because the hospital never returned her husband David's belongings, she didn't even have his wedding ring. Wow. Let me read to you one more short story, unique to, to grief inside of this COVID context. Teresita Horns, Horn is her name. She had spent more than a week on a breathing machine when her 13-year-old son, Donovan, died in a different hospital. She watched him die on her phone. She told the journalist, I remember screaming. When your kids are sick, she said, they need you. But I couldn't be there to comfort him. I couldn't hold his hand one last time. Just one last time. These two stories highlight for us the unique nature of losing loved ones to COVID in the midst of this pandemic and, and, and how that unique nature multiplies 100, 200 times, it feels like, for many people, uh, the, the notion of guilt and shame that's attached. Let me just make it, to make it clear to you, let me just outline some of, the, what, some of the unique pieces here. You heard it in the story, right? First of all, uh, it's possible for loved ones to unknowingly transmit COVID to other loved ones. We heard that in the story. We heard that not only that is uh, multiple losses. I mean, uh, uh, Lucy lost a husband, a mother-in-law, and a sister-in-law in two months. The mother in that story lost two kids in two months. It was too much for her to bear. Uh, dying alone, right? He, 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 uh, you know, it was a, it's a unique part. We heard that in the story. Maybe a nurse there, but the family can't be there. The inability to have an in-person funeral, at least in the earlier part, the first half of the pandemic. And so people feel like, I couldn't be there with you when you die, and I can't give you the appropriate funeral arrangements. This notion of society now rushing to normalize things, but if you've lost a loved one, life is not going to ever be normal for you. It makes us feel guilty that somehow we're lagging behind in our grief. What's wrong with us? And then painful reminders. You know, the phone that Donovan mom uh, last, you know, saw him on. Or the computer that the Skype was on that Lucy last saw her husband before these two individuals died. They are still part of the equipment and stuff that we use, Right. Uh, there was a young man who told a story about the fact that while his father lied dying, he was watching on TV and a politician was at a political rally making fun of people who wore masks and the people were cheering and laughing and just mania. And his father was dying of COVID. 
And he says he sees versions of that almost every day. It's almost like if you lost a loved one to cancer and half of the country, half of the country was making fun of people who died of cancer, or, or making fun of cancer rather. Horrendously painful, painful reminders. And then, of course, uh, the last one is simply what we call disenfranchised grief. It's, 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 it's when your loved one die of, of something that society doesn't deem to be socially acceptable. You know, back in the 80s, it was AIDS. Over the decades, if someone died of, of liver uh, failure because they were uh, drinkers or lung cancer because they were smokers, or if you're a minority parent whose child was gunned down in, in the streets in terms of gang violence are today for many if your loved one died and they weren't vaccinated. It, 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 it feels the same way that, that, that people are, are full of shame and guilt. You know, one of the worst things you can do when someone tells you that the loved one has died of COVID, the one of the worst things, most insensitive things you can do is simply to ask them, were they vaccinated? It just pours. It, 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 it is to suggest that perhaps this death, if they were not vaccinated, is less than any other death. Now, I'm pulling this, I'm raising this to the surface for two reasons. One, for those of you who are living in the middle of these stories and you're watching me right now, uh, as I said earlier, I want, God wants you to know that he sees you and that, that he understands the uniqueness of your story. And I want you to know that you are seen by others. And God wants you to know that you are valued and that you have not been forgotten. And, and, and I want you to know that you are not suffering alone, that your story is the story of hundreds of thousands of people across the country, millions of people, literally now, unfortunately, across the world. And we see you. And we care about you get that all right so here's a quick insight all right as we uh, let's just pivot let's talk about you say okay grief guilt and shame is a part of what i got to wrestle with all right here's the theology jesus crucifixion and resurrection empowers believers to engage guilt and shame now let's go back to the text and look at how, how that works in colossians 2 13 check this out paul paul is writing here he says listen you were dead because of your sins i talked about that a few moments ago how it's not just the wrongdoing it's the guilt and the shame that's attached to that 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 that, that calls us to be sometime walking dead people right he says, he says, but then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sin. Notice the past tense of the word. He forgave. The act of forgiveness has already been done. It's already been connected to the crucifixion of Jesus. All simply you and I have to do is own our stuff and access the forgiveness that God has already made available. And then I love this language. Watch this language. He canceled the record of the charges against us. I'm going to return to that notion again. Everybody say the charges against us. Write it in the, in the, in the chat. The charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross as his hands was nailed and his feet was nailed. Now, this is remarkable imagery. It is almost as though Paul understands something about cognitive 
cognitive uh, learning that we are discovering in modern day, right? We know that the brain is, is, uh, is, is malleable. And we know that tragedy and all that stuff shapes our brains and the neurons in our brains, cause it to start sending signals to us about how bad life is, how bad we are. We get that now. We learn. We have discovered that. But we also know because it's malleable that we can reprogram those neurons based on how we, the images that we kind of focus on and, 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 and what we say to ourselves and how we, how we, how we think out loud. We can, we can reprogram, right? It's almost as though Paul gets it. And so he gives us this powerful image. He says, I want you to imagine Jesus who historically was laid, was, was nailed to a cross. And I want you to imagine a list of the charges that, that are against you, that has all of your wrongdoings. And I want you to imagine that as they were putting those nails in his hands and in his feet, na- they were nailing the charges against you. But he paid the price. He settled the issue in creation. They conquered death. Wow. He says you got to access that. That's the beginning of moving toward dealing with your guilt and shame as relates to death also. You know, I was a uh, second year student at Grambling State University. And I just won my first major election. NAACP president. It's the big deal. It was the first time as a kid, grew up scarred, often rejected and, and overlooked. Here I was, elected to be president by other folk of some organization. Couldn't wait to call my grand auntie. I called her repeatedly. She had been sick for the last several years. She's always at home, no answer. I called my grandmother, who's always at home, no answer. Called my other aunt, Vera, and she said, I was just about to call you, your grand aunt. Had to be rushed to Shreveport, Louisiana, 40 miles north to the hospital there. And you need to get to Shreveport. I got there. I saw that evening. I saw again the next morning. It was clear she was dying. She told them to make, get her hair fixed up, put her in a new gown, and she's getting ready to go meet the Lord. And She gave me a chance to tell her how much I love her. And she, you know, feeling was obviously mutual. She conveyed it back to me. And then she gave instructions, always in charge, gave instructions for me to get back to Graham State University. And two days later, she died. My grief was almost unbearable. And in the center of that grief was guilt and shame. How did I not know she was so close to death? I had spent the transition summer between freshman and sophomore year. I stayed at Gramlin and I worked and took classes and I came all the way through. Didn't go home much, didn't call home much, you know, just super excited. How did I not know? Why didn't I do that? Guilt, shame. It was so thick that I could barely get out of bed. I missed most of my classes for the first half of the first half of the semester. Horrible. Maybe about 60, 70% of the semester. Pop in, pop out. Because, you know, after you miss a few classes, you're, you're feeling guilty and shame about that, so you don't want to show up, right? And thank God I wasn't drinking or drugging, but my, my drug really was campus politics. Since I threw myself there, I was so wounded. The guilt and shame was destroying my life. How does theology help 
my psychology, helps your psychology so you can break free. How does this text I just finished talking about helps your psychology so you can begin the work? Because it's not just one thing or two things or a switch that you flip, but you can begin the work to break through. How, how does it help? How does it help? Well, number one, the first thing you need to do is to be able to name that you're dealing with guilt and shame. You've got to be able to call it out. You've got to be able to say, you know, I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling shame. And you've got to know the difference between the two. Guilt is I've done something wrong. In my case, you know, essentially it meant that, you know, I, I didn't stay in close connection with my grand aunt during the last two years of her life as I should have. I, therefore, I didn't even know it was the last two years of her life. Shame is, 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 is not simply that I've done something wrong or done something bad. It's when, it's when I think that I am bad. I went from saying, you know, uh, I should have been in more contact with my grand aunt. She'd been calling. She'd been visiting a little bit more to saying what an irresponsible poor son I was to her, which ultimately ended up me saying what a bad person I am. But at least I, I had to articulate it before I could begin to move towards healing. You have to do the same. Second, you got to be specific. So often we feel this sense of guilt connected to loss, but it's kind of general up there. And we don't really know what it is. It's like a weight. But, but, but you've got to be specific, which essentially means, you know, you've got to identify what are the charges that are against me, to use Paul's language, that are going to be nailed. But to, to, to take that scripture uh, seriously, let me itemize the things that, I'm, that I feel guilty about. What are they? For me, I could itemize specifically what it was that I felt like I should have done that I did not do. Can you do that in the midst of your grief? That will require a little work sometime for you to do that. And the third thing is you've got to ask yourself the question, are the feelings of guilt and shame that I'm wrestling with, are they reasonable? Are they credible? Or are they unreasonable? Are they, you know, are they false charges that I'm leavening against myself? Are they credible or are they not credible? Are they reasonable or are they not reasonable? you got to wrestle with that. And in my case, I concluded, you know, here's the real deal. My grand aunt was happy that I was at Gramlin in freshman year sophomore, happy that I was, uh, you know, because her prayer repeatedly all the time I can remember growing up was, Lord, help me to live long enough to see Herman get on his own two feet and to see his life dramatically turned around. And she had seen that. She was elated. She didn't want me at home worrying about her. But, but my own, but that's separate and apart from what my own responsibility should have been. I had to be able to claim that, come to terms with that. So here's what you do. You claim your stuff. You confess and you receive. Say it with me. Confess. And receive whatever it is. I have a large, have a small it is. Confess and receive. Notice the language that Paul, listen to what he said. We just read it. He says the forgiveness has already been there. You just got to own your stuff and then it's, it's released to you. I love how First John puts it here. It's one of my favorite verses, you know. Uh, when we're in the Presbyterian church, we do a prayer of confession. This is the assurance of passage of, of, of a part in Scripture that we often quote. Here's what Paul says. Listen. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is no one who has lost a loved one who's perfect. And there's no one who has lost a loved one who was perfect inside of your relationship with that person. Right? None of us. But then the text says, but if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. It's done. 
And then, it says, purifies us of all unrighteousness. Here's the deal. I always say guilt and shame. Say it with me. Say guilt. Say shame. Guilt comes first, then comes shame. Why? Because first there is the incident, and the incident is the doorway through which toxic shame comes into our lives. And what the text says is the moment we know that we have been forgiven, it has been settled in creation. I'll come back to that in just a moment. The moment we know it's been given, then there's no more source to the shame. The shame should begin the process, shall process, the process of drying up. Not overnight, but over time. And part of what helps that process is we have to begin to reframe how we talk about that incident. The older people used to say when they were talking about what it means to walk in Jesus' forgiveness, here's what they would say. It's it's under the blood. Whatever that incident was, whatever that sin was, whatever that deal was, it's now under the blood. Can you just say it with me? Say, it's under the blood. Yeah. Uh, What they meant was the blood in the Hebrew tradition represents the life of the person. And when Jesus poured out his life on Calvary's cross, come on now, in the words of Paul, he canceled, he covered all of our sins. And the way they would reframe their thinking, reboot their thinking was simply by saying, it would, it, it's under the blood, it's under the blood, it's under the blood. When, my, when, my, when I think about what, you know, what I wish I had done with my grand aunt, I, I, can, I can own it, I can articulate it, I can talk about it, and then I can say, but it's under the blood. If that's not your language, try this one. It's been settled. The debt has been settled. It's been settled in creation. It's settled in heaven. It's settled on the earth. It's settled on Calvary's cross. Shout, it's settled. And the moment we can begin to say out loud, it's settled, then we start the process of reframing how we think about. We don't deny responsibility. But we, we, we lean into the fact that Jesus has settled it. We're settled. And then ultimately, once we know that God is forgiven, you got to forgive yourself. I had to ultimately forgive myself. Now, here's what was helpful for me to forgive myself. Check this out. Two things. One, I realized that my grandaunt knew how much I loved her. That was the biggest gift I could have given. She knew when I showed up for call. She knew how loved she was by me. There was no question about that. Number two, I knew that my grandaunt was not up in heaven pointing her finger at me, saying, how come you didn't come visit me? That is the last thing that she's concerned about. Come on now. Uh, uh, she probably was in heaven saying, boy, you better get yourself out of that dorm room and get to the class. <laughs> Don't you be front of me grieving, grieving about, come on, get your, you, you know the investment I've made in you. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Sometimes we do the assessment and we figure out that the guilt that we're carrying is unreasonable. It's not credible. Let me give you a quick example. When my granduncle got into the latter stages of of, uh, Alzheimer's, my wife and I moved him from Louisiana to Arkansas where I was pastoring. My goal was to keep him in the home with us until he drew his last breath. But his behavior became so erratic and in, in the middle of the night he would leave the house and get lost out in the streets and come close to being killed multiple times and we ended up having to put him in a facility that was the best decision we could make and then i was informally raised by him his his legal daughter 
found out, came, got him, moved him to Texas. And I was only able to visit him one time before he died. Here again, this feeling of guilt and shame, very similar to what I felt around my grandaunt years later, came up again. But as I did the assessment, I discovered that these charges was false that I put against myself. That at the end of the day, I had done all that I really could do. I couldn't get to Texas every week or every day or on a regular basis between that time and his death. And so the guilt that I was feeling, though it was real, it was incredible. And I could say that out loud, but it required me, one, to still acknowledge it, to take a look at it and observe it, non-condemnatory, and then ultimately reframe it. And so here's how I reframe uh, when I think about it. Here's how I reframe it. I, I, I say this. I regret that I couldn't get to see my granduncle. I regret, you know, that I couldn't keep him in the house with me. I regret it. As a matter of fact, even when I think about the stuff that I've been forgiven of, that reframing is still, you know, in addition to the fact that it has been settled in creation, that it is under the blood, I can now say, and I regret that I did not, you know, spend the kind of time I needed to so I would know that my grandaunt was inching closer and closer to the end of her life. I regret it. And, and, and that's a process, right? As you say that, you will cry some, you'll be angry some, you'll work it through. But, but as you reframe it, you'll move through by the grace of God into a new place. Now, let me just tell you one point, final thing. Sometimes the person that you got to forgive is the deceased, is the one who died. Maybe you're angry with that person because you said, you know, you should have gotten vaccinated. Or maybe you're angry with the person who lost their life driving recklessly in the car. How could you do that and leave us in such pain? And, and, and for somebody listening to me, you've got to be able to, to take that person before the Lord. And you've got to be able to, to just say out loud, I release you from condemnation and judgment because there's so much brokenness that factors into our lives None of us can understand why we make all the decisions that we make. And you're releasing and forgiving, not for that person, but so that you can move forward in your life. Yeah. Here's my favorite scripture, and I'm finished at the end of this. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, 12. This is what I mean when I say my grandaunt was not up in heaven pointing her finger at me. Your loved one is not in heaven pointing her finger at you. Why? Here's what Paul writes. Now here on earth, we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then when we're in eternity, we will see everything with perfect clarity, shout perfect clarity. And then he says, all that I know now while I'm here on earth is partial and incomplete. By the way, this is where conflict and frustration and anger and all this stuff comes from, grudges and all that, because we only know parts of the story right? So what I know is incomplete. But then when I'm in eternity, I will know everything completely. I'll have complete knowledge. I'll have a, a, a complete uh, 
perspective on the full story, just as God now knows me completely. My grandaunt has complete knowledge now. She knows how much I loved her. Come on, she understands the dynamics that even I didn't understand at that period of time. She is not up there pointing her finger at me. Rather, she is celebrating and living that brand new incredible life in eternity with her Savior, having trusted me into his hands. And so it is true for your loved one as well, right? This is the faith for those of us who die in the Lord and who trust that Lord to have the last word over all death. Here's where we're in. Last two points. Be patient and compassionate with yourself. It's going to take time. Treat yourself as well as you treat your best friend if you are helping them through grief. And make sure you reach out to others. Yeah. Reach out to others. Make, give voice to your pain. Let others engage you. Lord, I pray for those who are watching me who are in the midst of great grief. Let them know your strength, your comfort, and be empowered by the good news that you have conquered permanent death and there is life on the other side of death and there is life on the other side of great loss. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to extend you an invitation now. Scan the QR code right on the screen and I want to encourage you to, uh, to begin to reach out to community right now and uh, the first step you see on the next steps with Jesus is you're able to make a commitment to Jesus I want to encourage you to do that but on the response to the message I want to invite you to take a few moments and scan the QR code it's going to take you to our website we've set up a full page that will help you we got resources and things that will help you with your grief but there's also an assessment we're trying to get a sense of how many of you are out there that if we had uh, additional support to help you through your grief that you would take advantage of, whether you're watching us across the country, across the world, or whether you live here locally. So if you scan the, the QR code, uh, let us know if you'd be willing to be participate in a virtual or in-person grief group led by trained people who can help walk you through your grief. Let us know if you, if you want to participate, perhaps in a workshop that will continue to build your tools so you can work through it yourself. Let us know that if, if, if you've worked through your own grief and you want to be a part of, of, of helping others to heal by leading a small group, or that you have a unique set of training to do that, there, there, you can indicate that as you sign off, uh, as you access um, and work through the form that we have for you. Just a few questions. Would you please do that? Because I believe it's our task to come alongside those of you who are in need of healing. But you can't do it by yourself. We need each other. Here's a reflection question. I want to make sure you get this. What past or current loss is God inviting me to grieve? I'll see you next week.